Hello, welcome to another edition of our uh, cross-cultural talk program on Chin 97.9. Thursday, it is at a very... A very sultry one in the nation's capital with temperatures hovering uh, close to, if not a bit over 30 degree mark with a humidex reading. Uh, yeah, we're uh, we're getting pretty close to the 40 mark and it'll continue uh, to be this way for the next uh, couple of days. But, you know, the hotter it is, the better we get. Right. Another program on ADR, Alternative Dispute Resolution uh, with Ernie Tannis and his very special guests today, Larry McDermott and uh, Fiona Wright. This is uh, part two of a series entitled Resolving Conflicts and Prospering Together. And I invite you, together with myself, to enjoy the program with Ernie and his very special guests here on Chin at 97.9. Welcome to Alternative Dispute Resolution, our weekly series. Uh, I'm very proud to have back with us as part two of our last Economic Conflict series on Prospering Together. That part one was with three, two guests and our facilitator, Jeremy Wright, and they're all back here again. So let me introduce them um, briefly this time. We have Fiona Wright, uh, who did her master's degree recently in Sweden on strategic sustainable development. Sustainability with businesses is her focus now. Welcome back, Fiona. Yeah, good afternoon. And uh, Larry McDermott, you were a mayor of uh, a, a municipal territory, and you've been in local government for three decades. You've been very involved in environmental movement, international development. You're executive director of Plenty Canada, www.plentycanada.com, and you're a counselor with an Algonquin First Nations near Charlotte Lake. Welcome back, Larry. Thank you. And of course, Jeremy Wright, our facilitator of this great economics of conflict series. He also has a master's degree in economics from Oxford. He's a former economic advisor to governments, labor, and many, many organizations. He's involved in a lot of community thinking and uh, social justice causes, and he's a freelance filmmaker. And um, welcome back, Jeremy. Thank you very much indeed. Nice to be back. So we did in part one, we uh, uh, almost like if I could compare this like to a panel, and uh, the panelists have done presentations, what we're going to do in the first part of this part two of uh, Prospering Together is complete the presentations uh, with Fiona and um, Larry, with Jeremy facilitating. And in the last segment, we're going to move into conversation. So we're going to try to share a lot of information and knowledge around these themes that affect all of us as one human family. Why don't we start with you, Jeremy? You're going to have an opening um, comment or theme, and then we'll ask Fiona to take some quality time to deal with some very interesting uh, topics that I think the the listeners will find very valuable to understand our our world condition and how to fix it. Jeremy. Thanks very much. Well, I just have, uh, just by way of introduction, I think just to repeat a little bit what we were saying in the last show, that it's now becoming uh, increasingly important that we, the people, we prosper together and that we develop a sort of a vision for ourselves, our families, our neighborhoods and our communities, uh, which is worthy of us and worthy of this great nation, which is Canada. And that's Canada from coast to coast to coast, involving all sorts of people, the multi, uh, the uh, First Nations, all the other people that have come to Canada from many different nations, the multicultural component of which we're all so proud. And uh, we sometimes forget that we can offer this skill or this this uh, this heritage or these value systems to the world, because when at the fundamental level we are all human and we have one planet. Now, we know that, generally speaking, that uh, Mother Earth is in serious trouble and getting worse. Uh, We all know that the uh, path of everlasting consumption that we're on is is not working. Uh, There's all sorts of scarcities that are emerging. And, Fiona, in the last show, you were talking about uh, a little bit about the scarcity uh, is one of the things that exacerbates conflict. So I think probably for this show, why don't I, without further ado, ask you to take over, as it were, and talk a little bit about uh, uh, what's important to each one of us. I guess looking at, you know, what what is important to everyone sort of relates back to our value systems and, and to the basis of our underlying human needs, because... Um, human needs, the basic of, most basic of human needs are timeless and cross-cultural and uh, apply equally to every every human on the planet. Now, of course, the way that we satisfy those needs is cultural and is different in every 
country and every region and every community and, and, and some of these ways that we try to satisfy those needs can often lead to conflict. So I thought maybe I would just mention a little bit about that to relate it back to the series title, uh, looking at the economics of conflict and, and where people fit into that. So I thought maybe looking at our, our desire for peace and uh, dealing with conflicts, we can also look compare that to what my background is in, and, and that's considering issues of sustainability and long-term sustainability, which, of course, when we look at long-term sustainability, it sort of inherently includes a definition of peace, and vice versa, peace itself also includes an inherent definition of, of sustainability, both social and ecological, as some of the things that contribute toward the creation of conflict. So when we compare both of these uh, fields, we can see that both the issues of sustainability and reaching a sustainable society, as well as having a peaceful society, both of these issues are, are incredibly complex. And in order to deal with those complex uh, situations, we need to take a broad systems perspective and look at the bigger picture, the more long-term picture of really what's going on uh, in order to contextualize our, our local level actions. Both of these fields also require a lot of cooperation among people and the ability of every everyone to work together as uh, uh, my dad was just touching on. So um, when we look at managing and, and, and maintaining a state of sustainability as well as a state of or a conflict-free society, or I shouldn't say a conflict-free society because conflict is, of course, inherent to human nature, um, but perhaps a, a violent violence-free society or, or a way that we deal with conflict in an unhealthy way, whether that be structural violence or physical violence, or I think there's a number of other kinds of violence as well that we can look at. And both of these can also be a common goal for everyone. Sustainability is something that applies to all of us on the planet. Um, we're all sort of on this one earth together, and we need to consider that in the bigger picture, as well as maintaining peace because, of course, my actions affect you and your actions affect me. And when those effects reach a certain level, a conflict can be created if, if they're disruptive. And when we look, I guess that sort of leads into the, the idea that when we look at the underlying causes of conflict, these can be related back often to people's lack of ability to meet their, their basic human needs. So there, there's a number of conflict resolution or conflict needs-based theories, one, one of which was formed by uh, John Burton, who talks a lot in, in his theories about identity and freedom and security as the basis of, of many conflicts. And I, I'd like to draw the parallel between also the human needs theory of a Chilean economist called Manfred Max Neff, who has a theory... I think his, his book is called Human Scale Development, I believe, although I can confirm that. And he talks about nine basic human needs. And those human needs are, or they include identity, freedom, protection, subsistence. And subsistence, of course, would include, you know, food and water and shelter and health and those things. And they're all sort of lumped into that one basic human need. Creativity. We all have the need for idleness, as well as a need for understanding, affection, and the need to participate and be part of society and, and of a community. This human needs-based theory is not um, hierarchical in any way. It's not the same as Maslow's uh, pyramid of human needs. Not, it's not to say that you have to achieve some of them in order to achieve other ones. They're all sort of equal. You need to have all of them. And if one of them is missing, that can quickly lead to a conflict that needs to be dealt with. And that can sort of also lead into touching or... Looking at this, the human needs theory and, and social, the social fabric, which is a really important part of a sustainable society, can link that to the other important part of a sustainable society, which is an ecologically robust system. And that we can see how we treat it among ourselves and how we divvy up the allocation of resources and look at the fact that an uneven allocation of resources can also lead to conflict. Although I would also say that a, a scarcity of resources doesn't necessarily lead to conflict because it's how we deal with that and how we work together as a community that a scarcity of resources can provide an overarching goal that really helps people to cooperate. But if those scarce resources are incredibly unevenly allocated, you know, for example, if I have a pen at the table and you have a pen and my friend has a pen, but the other person at the table has 45 pens, then all of a sudden the rest of us want those pens because it's not really fair that we all have one pen that could break and someone else has 45 pens, even though it didn't matter at the beginning because I had my own pen. You can sort of, as a really simple example, sort of see how that certain sense of innate justice comes into play in some, some sort of stages. And I guess the, that scarcity of, of resources that can can lead to conflict, but doesn't necessarily, of course, but... We do have the economy as the sort of overarching system of people, of 
our society that helps us uh, do the best we can with allocating our resources in a supposed to be even way, but of course doesn't really work out like that. So I would sort of say that considering in the earlier days, what was scarce was financial capital, labor, and educated people. Whereas nowadays it's a robust ecosystem and strong and so- robust social fabrics that are, that are more scarce. There's a lot of lack of trust in the world and a lot of polluted areas that are becoming increasingly difficult to clean up. And the economic system hasn't caught up with that yet. So I would say that we need to sort of create a vision for ourselves and say, you know, where do we want to be in the future and what do we need to do now to get to that point? Instead of looking at the trends of the past and saying, well, how can we best navigate this? Because, of course, over the last 20 years, traffic has increased. So since it's going to increase in the next 20 years, let's build a lot more roads. Or we could say, what, what do we want our community to look like in 20 years? And, and what does that mean for the decision making of today? All of the sort of decisions of today and at the local level of the planning, uh, our food security, our uh, sources of energy, all of these things fall under that rationale of where do we want to be in the future. If I could just jump in here for a second. Uh, one of the things that, that I've been noticing is that you, you were mentioning to start with that you've been doing some work with industry or with the industrial side because corporations, in fact, I mean, they need to uh, uh, make a profit because uh, and if they don't, they go bankrupt. On the other hand, what's happening today, it seems to me, is that is that they, the the deck, if you like, is being stacked in favour of the corporations, uh, with all sorts of rights, uh, but with very few responsibilities. And while people in communities today, underneath the global economy or the global casino, as Hazel Henderson refers to it, people are finding it harder and harder to to make ends meet. And so that list of of um, needs that you've identified there, uh, uh, perhaps being threatened, and I'd ask you whether you'd like to agree with this or not, whether those needs are in fact being threatened by the current global economic system which diminishes the the individual and diminishes the role of community in its everyday life. I would absolutely agree with that. I think that we don't always realize at first that our human needs are being undermined and we sort of do focus on profit as a way to get money and meet our human needs. But in fact, having money does not meet our need for understanding, for community, for identity, for freedom, for protection. It can help us with subsistence as long as there's an ecosystem there to draw on. But if that ecosystem is itself destroyed, then the money still won't help us. But I would say there's a, there's a bit of a misnomer in the idea that working for sustainability or for a more sustainable society, both in the ecological sense and in the social sense leads to bankruptcy because we can in fact make more intelligent decisions that help us as a community in the longer term and increase the sharing of of resources the revenue the profits uh, you know in such a way that is beneficial uh, for everyone you just have to change the way that you think about it and the way that you go about it and i think that it's the path right now that is a bit problematic well i really um enjoyed all of that I said, if it a selfish agenda, I wanted to hear all that you had to say from all your information. And uh, if I gain something, I'm sure a lot of listeners do. One thing that always intrigues me about the question of these underlying needs or deep-rooted conflict and on the economics is how policymakers, through politicians or diplomats or decision-makers, whether it's the corporate decision-makers too, is how few uh, budgets are allocated to those underlying needs. And they're allocated to the superficial needs or the, the service uh, um, an elite class. It, and I, this phrase came to me, you know, war is big business for the few and peace is better business for the many. But if you even look at our society, it's amazing how little money we spend even on a percentage basis to meet those underlying needs or conflict resolution or conflict prevention. And we put all the money in um, adversarial processes and the media is always playing out a story of fear. So budgets go a certain way. So a lot of a lot of what I believe, and this is a cynic, is me, says that it's a fight for budgets. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, I I think that you're right, and I think that a lot of of budgets are somewhat allocated to to necessarily, as you say, um, or unnecessarily, as you say, adversarial things. I would maybe mention too that I think. A lot of those times people don't realize that they're adversarial. Like I think that everyone by nature is a good person and wants what's best for their family and for their health and for their kids and for their community. It's just that there's 
perhaps a lack of bigger picture perspective on what we're trying to do. So we are trying to satisfy those human needs with our budgets, except that maybe we're only thinking about our human needs and not the community's human mm-hmm. needs. Or we're only thinking, we don't, we don't make those longer term connections because at, at the end of the day, we're all still human. And I think that nobody is, is going out to do a really bad thing for the world. I mean, everyone I think is working, or I mean, I can only believe is working for what they believe is to be a some benefit. What we need to do is make those longer term connections and say, you know, is this actually meeting what you're intending it to meet. In terms of that question, I mean, that is a question what we all have to answer as we wrap up this first session. I'm going to ask Jeremy to uh, make a final comment, and we're going to you know, hear from Larry in the second segment, is the, uh, those notions, um, how it affects us, and then how it affects the community, is goes to a deep value systems. I know I'm talking to a, a Jewish friend, and I know that every, every great teaching has something like this, but it, it teaches... Righteousness, righteousness. I said, what does that mean? You have to do not only what's righteous for you, but what's righteous for the community. It's that second link that's missing, it sounds mm-hmm. like, in the discussion. And there are people who do what's right for them, but it doesn't do right for everyone else. So that's, a, that's those are nice big picture links, you know, that keep in mind. And it certainly leads into the Aboriginal wisdom, what we're going to hear about in terms of the next generations. Jeremy, um, uh, I remembered uh, Gandhi and his... Uh, Travels said that one of the most inspiring places he'd been to is the poorest place on earth in Bangladesh, and uh, where the, the, he got inspiration from, from that place. I always was taken by that story. I wonder if you want to make some final comments in this segment on ninety-seven point nine FM Chin Radio on this ADR weekly series. Sure. Well, on that last thing that you bring up, you see that if your consciousness isn't being uh, overwhelmed by by your status symbol, you have, by your status symbols and the way you where you are on the pecking order in the neighbourhood. Well, then you can actually afford to be yourself. <laughs> uh, it's curious, but uh, yeah. but that's the, that is the case. And if you can afford to be yourself, and as Fiona is saying, looking at the big picture, I mean, you you, you talked about Bangladesh. Well, my understanding, uh, I was in uh, Second Cup here the other day, and. Uh, Second Cup was offering uh, uh, smoothies at $5 a smoothie. I mean, one goes in, you spend your $5 and, and so on. But uh, we forget that that is the average weekly wage. It takes a week in, in Bangladesh yeah. to earn that amount of money. So there is a huge uh, difference between the quality of, of the living, quote, living standards to the people that can spend $5 on a smoothie without thinking about it and those who live in the uh, third world who have to work for a week in order to buy one. But when you put it in those, um, in that context, it really makes you sort of think twice about what we take for granted or what the relative position of people are. We were talking before the show about some social scientists who had studied 30-some wars since World War II and said that one of the common denominators was unemployed men and the um, some of the warlords said if they can get the landmines off their property and grow agriculture, they wouldn't have to do what they do. And I'm, you know, I just wonder about, you hear people say things like that and it just, it seems so like a, what my dean would have said, illuminating glimpse into the obvious. Why don't we get it? I don't know. This seems so obvious. Well, it is obvious when when you see it. I mean, but I mean, anything is obvious when you, once you've seen it. And if you don't see it, and as Fiona is saying, you don't have the bigger picture. You don't have the long term vision of what it takes for uh, for not only yourself to survive to the end of the month to pay your credit card bills to buy things you didn't need and can't afford anyway. You you use your everyday consciousness, thinking, priorities, value systems in order to basically create a better long term world, which is the sustainability side. I know that uh, later on in the in the uh, in the show we're going to get at some of the First Nations perspective, but they uh, look to seven generations just as a matter of course. Well, so instead of being self-centered, we'll be centered in ourselves, which is very important in terms of world peace or inner peace, the way I see it. And we'll will come back in terms of an Aboriginal perspective with Larry McDermott. And thank you, Jeremy Wright and Fiona Wright, for starting off this part two on prospering together. And we'll look forward to coming back. To Larry McDermott. Chin Radio invites you to celebrate Odyssey Theater's 22nd season Under the Stars at Strathcona Park, July 26th to August 26th. Enjoy Carlo Goldoni's masterpiece, A Curious Mishap. Enjoy this wonderful presentation Tuesday through Sunday evenings at 8 p.m. and Sunday matinees at 3. There are also specially adapted youth matinees at 1. For ticket information, call Odyssey Theater at 613-232-8407. 
Weekday mornings are always sunny side up with Caribbean exposure. Join Cheryl and Wally Monday to Friday from 5 to 7 a.m. on Chin 97.9. Welcome back to the second segment of Part 2, Prospering Together on the Economics of Conflict series with uh, Jeremy Wright, Fiona Wright, and we're going to be listening to uh, Larry McDermott in this segment. It's almost like you get hit by a two-by-four and the person says, now we've got your attention, here's what I have to say. That's exactly right. And Larry is a fantastic, because I've been working with him for quite a while on a number of issues. And the more I work with him, the more I realize that the title from the show, How Do We Prosper Together, is really important. And Larry, you've been looking at it from the community perspective and various perspectives. So why don't I just hand it over to you for what you would like to say next? I'm going to do both the uh, the global perspective and, and the local uh, perspective, and for that matter, uh, Vision for Canada. I feel that uh, having uh, worked in what I would consider social and, and environmental development for the last 30 years. I've, I've actually been freed up, uh, now that I'm no longer in politics, to work on a couple of priorities that I feel drawn toward, and they are that we need an inclusive approach, a cross-cultural approach, to finding a way to live on this land together. Uh, and I think that starts with embracing Aboriginal knowledge. We have wisdom keepers. You've had some of them on the show here. People like Mishomas, uh, William Commander, Douglas Cardinal, who I, I think share a fantastic vision about how we can work with uh, the resources that we have. Uh, we can uh, embrace the life of this land, celebrate the life of this land, and build a, a future, not just merely uh, struggle to survive. And I think that you've heard through William, for example, of, of his vision for Victoria Island. and something I'd, I'd love to see Ottawa come out and support. It's something this country needs, the world needs. Peace and, and healing center that shares Aboriginal wisdom and helps develop a, um, a contemporary vision for the future. We, we have uh, social, economic, and, and gov- government st- structures that are still vertical. I still don't embrace, for example, Aboriginal wisdom. We look through supercilious lenses at what we have, despite the fact that all the signs are are there, that we've got to make some major changes. Uh, It is welcoming to see things like uh, the Live Earth event. The fact is, if they're happening, and that's the theme, it reflects the fact that uh, humankind recognize right now the most important issue facing humanity is survival and is to live sustainable sustainably and that uh, we have to make adjustments i noticed that there was a pledge with seven components to that pledge i looked at the pledge and i actually felt proud to be working with people who are addressing every item on on that pledge but it includes things like tree planting it's looking at how do we uh, uh, minimize our our carbon impact and so on. The beauty of any strategy and dealing with those problems that the world uh, faces, I know through Plenty Canada's work, through the work in my uh, Algonquin First Nation, that at the same time you're dealing with things like carbon imprint, you can deal with species at risk. You can deal with invasive species. For example, you can deal with butternut, which are threatened species. And you can still improve the lungs of of Mother Earth as you do those kinds of things. So there's some very creative things that can be done to improve our environment. And obviously, there are urban challenges that are different than rural challenges. But ultimately, what we do, whether we're living in downtown Ottawa or out along the Mississippi, somewhere in between Lanark and uh, McDonald's Corners... We all affect each other. And recently, the Algonquin people in my area and from other First Nations, uh, there are people there from uh, Tyendinaga. We've had visitors from First Nations from far and wide, really. And we've also had local people from all kinds of walks of life who joined us recently. In fact, just a couple of days ago, marched down Highway 7. We shut down Highway 7 for an hour and a half. We did that in agreement with the OPP and with their cooperation. But it was an amazing display of people of all walks of life marching and saying, life is important. Uranium is an industry that is not compatible with sustainability for our territory, for our homes, for our children, and for future generations. I was very proud to be part of that and work uh, shoulder to shoulder, not only with Algonquins, but with people who uh, can trace their ancestry uh, all over this planet. 
I wanted to just clarify that was, uh, I think, Sunday, July the um, 8th that that event took place. That's uh, correct. Right. And uh, that's a good good example of the application kind of things we talked about in the first segment in the first part. So uh, maybe you can carry on with your vision, some of the examples uh, and thoughts you have on, on this topic. I just wanted to mention a local connection at the Live Earth event in Washington. I know there were some congressmen who I believe didn't want to see the event in Washington, but it happened and it actually happened at the Smithsonian Museum of the American Indian. And the acting director, Tim Johnson, is a Mohawk from Six Nations who worked for Plenty Canada for seven years here in Lanark. And uh, the woman who gave concluding remarks and who was the first Aboriginal midwife certified in Ontario was Gudgie Cook from Aquasasne, who was also on the Plenty Canada board. So there's a local connection there. But much more importantly is the fact that It was a recognition of the indigenous perspective and the value in in finding a sustainable path for all people of this planet. I was quite proud of that aspect of uh, Live Earth. I also uh, wanted to touch on um, the pledge that came out of Live Earth included buying products from companies that embrace sustainability. One of the things that I've been doing lately is sitting on the Forest Stewardship Council to set certification standards for the forest industry on uh, public lands in Quebec and Ontario below the boreal forest. It's the last part of Canada to uh, do so, but it's an opportunity to build from others' experience based on international standards. It includes Principle 3, which uh, is something that I've watched very closely, which is a commitment to Indigenous people also to ensure that there is true sharing and that that sharing is uh, measurable. It looks at things like uh, ensuring that species at risk objectives are met, a variety of sustainable factors so that when you go buy a paper or a two-by-four, you know that there is an auditable process to ensure those values are part of the commerce that you're engaging in. And I think it's very, very important to be able to see the connection of what you purchase and what impact that's having on the land. I noticed the Washington Post today, there's a congressman that's suggesting a carbon tax on gasoline. Uh, The Post was against it, and of course, doubt we'll see that happening very quickly. But the whole idea is to improve the connection, make it more visible about our purchases and how we live our lives and the impact that we're having. And I think that objective is very important. I want to ask you, Larry, uh, my wife, she's always price conscious of everything is a good shopper and negotiates everything but there's a lot of products that I'm aware of where the alternatives which are much more environmental friendly and mother earth loving are more expensive now this consumer driven market focus is very intriguing because that's good that's where the um, change will come from the developers and manufacturers how does that I don't know if there's an answer to this but how do you how do you get to that point where you make it price competitive. I know Jeremy has lots of thoughts on that, but uh, I reflect on the organic food movement. And when it started, the prices were very high. In some cases, they still are. And you could only go to a health food store. Now, it's become uh, much more available. It's the fastest growing segment of the grocery industry. And as it grows... You know, you also you get into volume, and uh, mm-hmm. there's the whole economics, which Jeremy can speak to much better than I can. But what I know is, is that people are prepared to vote with their wallet. Contrary to political cynics, people will spend an extra dollar to ensure that what they're doing meets their values. And their values are increasingly such that they recognize that everybody has to do their part to make this earth a sustainable earth. Well, that's like a succinctly and well said. I'm wondering if we want to do your part, Jeremy, as we listen to uh, Prospering Together on 97.9 FM on Chin Radio on this really important down-the-earth topic from a consumer point of view, if you wouldn't mind adding to that, and then we'll get Larry to continue. I'm really keen to hear about his vision for Canada, too. Just a quick thought on what Larry was saying about voting with our money, because it's very important that we do that. Some difficulty I had with your comment about price being the only consideration. Because if I look at price, I mean, we have that corporation that we love to hate, which is Walmart. Uh, Walmart is clearly the cheapest of a lot of the stores around, but all the jobs, most of the jobs are being exported to low-wage countries, particularly China. So I'm not sure that price is is the only 
thing. The second thing that I also have too is that I think back to when I was smaller and you had you were buying nails and you were buying whatever it was and you used to go into your local hardware store and there was used to be huge bins of nails and you'd you pick them out and you buy them by weight. Today it's there's a huge amount of over packaging that goes on. You have three little tiny screws in a huge package. So you're beginning to think you get value. I'm all for value based purchasing. So you buy what is important to you. We cannot go on buying, in my opinion, things that when looked at, and this comes back to what Fiona was saying, uh, that from a narrow perspective appear to be cheaper, but which are more expensive in the long run. And anything that pollutes our air, our water, our communities, and so on, are surely products and behaviors that we should not, not support any longer with our, tax, with our tax or discretionary dollars. Well, that's great. I noticed when you tap the table, you're really serious about this. And I didn't know you were smaller ones, Jeremy, but that's good to hear. <laughs> but let's, you know, we are talking about bigger, bigger questions here, too. Fiona, did you want to say something about the, about this topic? And then we'll uh, turn it back to Larry. You just sort of triggered me to jump in when I was thinking along the lines of purchasing for sustainability. And, you know, I mean, you can arguably say that the most sustainable purchase is no purchase. I mean, do you even need really what you're buying? Um, and can you live with things that you can create yourself? Um, and then the next Next of most sustainable purchase would be something secondhand, something that's already been used and bought, so you're not adding to the energy flow. And then the next most sustainable purchase after that is local, supporting your community, and so on and so forth until you get down to the least sustainable purchases that have traveled three times around the world, been compiled somewhere, bottled somewhere else, packaged somewhere else, and end up on your table. Larry, we have seven minutes. It's a good quality time for you to uh, share your thoughts. Well, I want to build on uh, what Fiona and and Jeremy have just said. I'm going to make one statement, and that's that in, in Canada, we must embrace Aboriginal knowledge about living in harmony with life on this incredibly abundant land we all are so fortunate to share. I know I'm an Algonquin and in saying that, you know, I'm, I'm speaking for myself and for our people, but I just, I know that people like Michelle Miss William Commanda have so much to offer in terms of a very simple way of, uh, of living on this land and embracing the, the life of this land, that it's loving the life. It's not managing a warehouse. It's loving this country and all of life that supports us and recognizing that we are not superior to the rest of life. We are part of the rest of life. That's very important. In that spirit and in the spirit of what Fiona was saying about purchasing and finding resources that have the least impact, one of the projects that Plenty Canada has right now is we have a traditional resource program in which uh, an individual is working in our uh, local communities and we're looking at things, items that are normally discarded, things like poor quality fur, for example. And we're looking at the things that come from the land and how can we produce some of those, the items that we need to survive and how can we do that and also strengthen our cultural ties. But in doing that, we expect to share some of that knowledge uh, with the wider community. There's a lot to it. We're looking at wild rice and, and how we harvest it. We fought years ago, decades ago, to protect the wild rice harvest in our area, to protect it as a traditional wild rice harvest. No no machines. It's not done for efficiency and, and commerce. It's done for celebration. It's done uh, for social objectives and cultural objectives, but it's also done to protect the biodiversity of our watershed. And, and it's a learning experience, and, and ultimately uh, uh, we'll have much to share. But we're also reaching out to others. It's not just Aboriginal science. We're looking at things like biodiesel. We're looking at photovoltaics and, and wind charging systems. How can we live lighter on the land? How can we take our culture, our responsibility to care for Mother Earth, and live in a contemporary world. We feel we've been sitting on our heels, and it's time for us to step up to the plate And uh, so that's why we have this project. And it's exciting. It's a lot of fun working with elders, working with young people. I know one 16-year-old that's come up with uh, some pretty amazing ideas. So that's that's one thing uh, we're doing. And if I can just touch on a couple of other things. Internationally, one of the projects I love is uh, we do a lot with gravity-fed water systems. Find a spring, cap that spring, find a spring above a village, and then use gravity to provide the water pressure uh, for everyone. No pumps to maintain, no energy, no external energy source required to pump that water. Very simple. You know, it's that kind of technology that we need to look for. 
having been a mayor, looking at $20 million water systems and, and sewage systems, knowing that I'm working with systems that should cost a small fraction of the kind of money that uh, we, we look at, and knowing that we can use our resources, fulfill our needs with much simpler technology for a lot less money, it's amazing how slow we are to embrace a much more graceful way of living on this earth. There's a lot that uh, can be done. And uh, I'd like to just mention, we do have a fundraiser coming up on August 25th at Timber Run Golf Course in Lanark, just west of Ottawa, north of Perth. Starts at 1, and then there's a dinner and dance to follow at 530, $70. Uh, There's for 18 holes, cart, dinner, and prizes, and dance, and a lot of fun. It's a beautiful facility. I think it was selected as the most uh, beautiful facility of any golf course. The log, uh, I'm going to call it a cabin, but that's not doesn't really do it justice, but it's an incredible building. Where can people get more information or get tickets? They can either call us at 613-278-2215, or you can go on the web, we're at www.plentycanada.com and just uh, email us at info at plentycanada.com. Well, there's lots of information on this show, and there was a, I think we have a couple minutes uh, left on this segment. I just wanted to touch on two things. Uh, we were talking at our uh, little uh, dinner discussion before our, our show today about we're living on little. There was a phrase I heard a long time ago, those who have little have much, those who have less have more. It was sort of an interesting concept about looking at it from another angle. And one of the things that struck me when you're talking about the wisdom, the Aboriginal wisdom, and Jerry, you, you know, encouraging people to look at the, the wisdom from other places, and Fiona, you bring in all these principles. I learned from my brother-in-law, Osama, that it was a Lebanese fellow in the 40s who was the first to study solar cells and got a lot of these patents. I was thinking that in North America, there was a book on place names and the thinking of Aboriginal people that most people in North America aren't even aware of. We don't pay attention to what other cultures have to say, what their original instructions from the creator were, or what their original thinking was. And that kind of disparity in thinking is sort of intrigues me. I wonder if here we are on 97.9 FM on our Eternal Dispute Resolution show. Just on this one thought, if there's anything that comes to mind on anyone on that point about why we don't pay attention to that other thinking or other wisdom from other cultures. Well, I think we have to be humbled enough to recognize that there are other knowledge uh, systems, uh, there are other belief systems. I can't help but think about the first settlers on Patterson Lake, uh, which is near me, and they marveled at their relationship uh, with my Algonquin ancestors. But two things, or two disconnects. One was the relationship to the land. Your Western view of property was a disconnect, but the other one was worldview. They lamented that uh, the Algonquins could see God in the trees and in the sky. Well, it's too bad that they didn't try a little harder to understand what we were talking about because I think we had a lot to share. They didn't have to be threatened by our worldview. In fact, by sharing our worldviews, it actually enhances how we both look at things, and, and that takes courage. Well, let's have the courage to do a show just on that. I'm going to go back to you, Jeremy, but it made me think that two two examples that come to mind that everyone will be aware of is it was the U.S. Constitution was modeled on the Iroquois Confederacy, right? It wasn't until 1992, the 500th anniversary when Columbus got lost, that they acknowledged that by joint resolution. So, uh, so Jeremy, you want to wrap this up? We got about a minute or so. We'll come back and have a conversation in our third segment. Yeah, just a quick comment on, on the idea of a worldview. I mean, having been born in England myself, brought up to believe in Queen and Country and Empire and all that good stuff. And uh, when I came to Canada, I discovered that the Empire building was not quite as uh, civilized and humane as uh, I, my the school books that I read led me to believe, particularly when it came comes to uh, uh, this continent, both North America and and South America, I mean, with the Spanish, the uh, the all the magnificent Mayan wisdom was burnt as works of the devil, for example, mm-hmm. and uh, for some of the uh, non communication between uh, England and and uh, the First Nations here in Canada, they were viewed as as uh, essentially savages, because they disagreed with the uh, colonial view that uh, of the people that arrived whose hearts were, quote, uh, filled with the greed for the riches of the land. And if your hearts are filled with the greed for the riches of the land and, and the people that are there saying, yes, but look, there's God in every tree and in every stone and in every insect, uh, you tend to get rather upset because you don't want to uh, 
you don't quite know what to do and the only way you can deal with that in my opinion is to get into a massive state of denial and saying that people think that aren't worthwhile which is stupid but uh, I think that's I mean if we could both understand the the other side and take the longer term view of uh, that the universe is one created by what most of us believe is the great creator uh, then we are in fact on a long way to turning the planet into uh, one planet and one people well, thank you, because our riches are in our mind, hearts, and spirit, and that's what we're sharing here in terms of finding that balance. And we'll be back from our presentation to our conversation in our third segment on 97.9 FM Chin Radio. If you have a legal question and you'd like to address it to an expert, be sure to join Luke Barrick and Gary Michaels Wednesdays at 12 noon on Chin Radio. The program is Legal Talk at 97.9. Welcome back to our third segment of this part two of Prospering Together. Jeremy, we got that right. We got the economics down right on that one. Uh, We are with Jeremy Wright and Fiona Wright and Larry McDermott. On this wonderful topic, I find it very uh, inspiring and enlightening, and we are in our conversation segment here, when I'll ask you, Jeremy, to maybe facilitate the conversation on this topic. Okay, as mentioned previously, the title of the show is uh, is Prospering Together, or Together We Prosper. And so the question is, how do we start doing this in a world which is increasingly a top-down world, it's increasingly a corporate world, and it's increasing a world where corporations have rights over communities without having any responsibilities to them. And I think that uh, we tend in a, in a top-down system to, to uh, go more for conformity within that system than we do to look after our own longer-term interests. And I think that what's been said in the show so far maybe is a good intro to this last segment. I mean, what is it that we, the people, as individuals, what is it that we can do to speak up and to stand up for what we need in order to survive and prosper? And this is, I think, really the, the purpose of the show and the purpose of the Economics of Conflict series, which is a domestic local concept, in my opinion, and it's not a global economic concept. Now, recently, so far in the show, we've, uh, Larry, you were talking about people who showed up to, uh, for the march on, on the uranium thing, uh, the live earth, uh, you were also mentioning as the uh, two billion people standing up. We had uh, several million people objecting to the war in Iraq way back when it was all, all everybody was objecting to the US invasion. And so these are the, for me the beginning stirrings of we the people standing up and becoming assertive and saying look it's about time we held our elected representatives accountable for what is important to us rather than what is important to the international multinational corporations who have no responsibilities to us whatsoever or to the Mother Earth. So I think with that thought, maybe I could just toss that out and say, where do we go from here? Um, We ended the first show on some questions about what is it we can all do, and I would like to start off with the idea that we can all stand up and become a little more assertive about what is important to us and what it is that we need for our families and and, uh, to prosper in community. So my, my contribution to that is... Let's all become a little bit more assertive. I would just jump off that and say that I I would agree. I think that bottom-up efforts are incredibly important for the people to stand up at the grassroots and middle-level levels to complement and inspire the action from the top down. So I, I guess coming around to that, I think that we need both, and I think that we need to meet up both of those efforts together. Uh, And it's not an excuse in, in a lot of ways. I think we sit around and say, well, we can't do anything because... We need direction from the government. The government's not doing anything. But that it's not a reason to me at all. I think that working at the local level from the grassroots, um, we the people, uh, give success stories and confidence to the government to be able to, to act based on the patterns and, and the things that we've seen at, at, the, at the local level. And uh, these leaders from both sides are, are uh, incredibly important for us all to mobilize. Could I just ask you how you relate to this? Uh, it was said to me once that uh, basically we we think we're living in a top-down system and that we should therefore obey. However, when we look at how our politicians get paid, I mean, uh, they go from election, we elect them, we pay the taxes to pay their salaries, and it's totally arguable that they are our employees and that the, we have to invert the pyramid and recognize that they are our servants. 
this is what public service to me is all about. So what's wrong with my suggestion that we should stand up and hold our servants to account? Absolutely nothing. I think that's very important to do, of course. You know, the line goes, when the people lead, the leaders have to follow. Definitely, I think accountability is very important as well as... But I think also energy and inspiration is is very important, and that can come from every end because it's very difficult, as we all know, to get... Nine or thirty billion people, thirty million people, I should say, to work together without having a certain committee or, or a set of leaders, and that's, of course, the purpose of government is to help us to uh, be efficient and get stuff going. So I think that every community has some sort of governance level, and and how we tap into that and work with it is is the powers in our hands. To do with consensus and working together, Larry, have you got something that you want to chip into this uh, discussion? Well, having uh, served in government for nearly 30 years, and uh, I got to see the green funds come together at the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, and uh, I was the founding chair for rural communities, and and I got to uh, serve Canadian municipalities for four years as a Sustainable Community Awards judge. Very fortunate, but uh, there's still so much more work to do. One of the problems we have is that the most common sources of education for most of us, especially once we uh, complete our formal education, is radio and television. And I think it's, uh, and what we are bombarded with are messages of consumption and uh, messages of uh, uh, we'll improve our status with this item or that item. What we need, actually, I think, is uh, we need the resources to educate people about how they can counter this paradigm, how they can live more simply. I, I've heard it said as, uh, you know, post-Live Earth Summit that uh, we need a simple education. People don't realize that simply by changing the light bulbs they use, they can eliminate uh, numerous nuclear and coal plants and, and other uh, energy sources, even the so-called green uh, energy sources, um, have some impacts. Uh, so if we can reduce our consumption, that's the first step, as uh, Fiona said earlier. Um, so I think uh, we've got to find, we need to support uh, our environmental groups. We need to support the alternative voice. And too often, uh, the people that are uh, facing the corporations and uh, can tell you in our uranium uh, battle in Charbot Lake area, I went into the offices of Mining Watch and, you know, uh, such a humble office, people that work long hours for virtually no pay. We've got to balance that. We've got to support uh, those people that uh, help us with the education uh, to protect our Mother Earth and uh, the ways to live on this Earth more lightly. Uh, we need more of it. Not uh, We need to balance uh, the flow of inf- information that we're receiving. Well, I saw some good information, which is education, which I think is knowledge within on that uranium issue. And there was a sign that said, this, you know, the pollution will lead to cancer. And there was we had a show here on cancer. It's about prevention. It's about time. And uh, on the question of individual contribution, the people at that phenomenal conference mentioned that the at the systemic government level, there has to be large changes to the rules, to the laws, because there's only so much, even if all the global citizens wanted to do something, allowing corporations or organizations to do what they want on the land without laws to control that is not going to stop. The, which people don't maybe think about that, that leads to cancer and not only the, the illness of Mother Earth is our illness. Is there any comments on that, that, that balance between the institutional change that has to be done and the individual contribution? We have a few minutes left. We have about maybe a minute left for each of you if you want to sort of say something about that or anything else in terms of a, a vision comment. Well, I'm going to go right to the Mining Act. The Mining Act, a corporation can go and get the subsurface rights to your property. You can wake up in the morning and they'll be shoveling earth in your backyard. That is ridiculous. Uh, there, should, there should only be um, subsurface and surface rights should be integrated. The Mining Act is one example of the threat to security of home, and that needs to change. Uh, and, and the only way that's going to change is for people to say enough is enough and this has to change. And even though mining is going to occur in rural areas, we need our urban uh, brothers and sisters to join us. 
Well, thank you very much. We have about a minute left. Do you want to make a final comment, uh, Fiona? I would sort of say, like, what when we're looking at we the people and what can we as individuals do, I think one of the, the biggest things we can do is to get informed about our the impacts of our actions. You know, read one paragraph every day. Buy a book that you're interested in from any aspect of environmental or social sustainability or resolving conflict or anything in that, in that picture. Think about whether um, any of your actions are undermining someone else's ability to meet their needs. Uh, whether that be in your country, in your community, or somewhere else. Then you can get into the more concrete, everyday considerations. You know, I mean, can list off a lot of things like, um, as we said before, consider your purchasing choices. Consider your energy consumption. You know, plug everything in your house into a power bar and shut off the power bar at night to reduce your phantom load. Um, Don't use the dryer. We have... Uh, hot outdoors. I mean, there's absolutely no reason to be using a dryer when you can hang out your clothes. Use public transit. Eat organic food. Buy local. When you're taking your vacation this year, look around the beautiful country of Canada, of Ontario, for example, um, wherever you happen to be, and, and maybe consider that you can have an equally great getaway or vacation near to your home and maybe not halfway around the world, um, and, and that might not be difficult to do. Collect rainwater in your backyard. Install a solar hot water heater with garbage bags um, and, and glass. Do a little urban agriculture in your backyard. Grow some tomatoes. Get involved in your community. And again, put everything in the bigger picture. And I think that, that if we all do that, we can really start to find that common vision that we can all work towards together and compare success stories and actions and learn from each other. Wow, that's a great list. It reminds me of Dr. Rapp was on the show. She has a whole website of hundreds of tips on that. It made me think of it. So thank you for that uh, concrete contribution. Jeremy? Well, I would like to uh, to add to a little bit to both of those. Well, one thing you said, Ernie, was about reducing consumption. Uh, I find a lot of people, when you talk about reducing anything, sort of turn off because I, the phrase I prefer is doing more with less. And it's like Fiona was saying with the uh, uh, $10, $15 solar uh, hot water systems. I mean, you can put them together for $9 or something and then just uh, cook with those if you're, if you're intelligent and say so you don't pay any hydro or gas utility bills. I mean, that's doing more with less, uh, but you don't have to necessarily reduce your consumption, but you shift towards uh, sustainability. And the other thing I would say is very important, Larry, picking up on your Mining Act, there's a whole raft of legislation coming down thanks to the multinationals at the moment on the subject of water, the export of bottled water, uh, the uh, ability of the multinational corporations to come in and take water, b- pollute our streams, our rivers, and uh, and so on, and this has to be stopped. Water it is, uh, as the Council of Canadians argues all the time, water is a human right. It is not a commodity um, to be traded, nor is it a global asset uh, to be polluted, because we, from water d- doth all life begin. So let it be written, so let it be done. Thank you very much to uh, Larry McDermott and Fiona Wright and Jeremy Wright and on our 131st Alternative Dispute Resolution Show. And Bailey on the Mining Act made me think it's because everybody thinks it's mine, mine, mine. It's the Mining Act. It's like a kid saying it's mine, but it's ours. It's ours to act. That's what we should be thinking about. And thank you very much. I believe there's a seat here for another show, so hang on, folks. Thanks a lot. Jimmy Witch. Thank you. Thank you.